doctor. Oh, we just did this. I literally was like, I know you want me to call you Susie, but I said I was going to throw a doctor in there because you deserve it. Dr. Susie Spurlock, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. We have, um, I've only, I've only followed you for the last like year or so, but you're just like, you have just, I don't know, such really, I mean, I don't know where I was and I hadn't followed you for a while. I forgot who shared it, but you have just incredible um, content, not from like a, not just from an educational standpoint. Uh, let me just, this is where this thought is coming from is that recently, me personally, per, me personally with my own feed, I'm bored as fuck with my own feed. And I'm like, again, I do this for a living. I consume a ton. Like, so it's different than like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm sure some of our followers really enjoy it there. It's just a little different for me when it's what you do for work. But, but there are still some people like I've dwindled down the amount of people I'm following. Like, um, you, and what I'm saying is you still make the cut. You know, I'm just kidding. But, um, but you have just wonderful content. It's like actually entertaining. It's actually like on the money. And so, man, it's just, it's tough out there. You know, it's just like whatever saturated stupid word, but like there's just a lot out there and, 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 uh, yeah, you just do a really, really good job. So just wanted to start by saying that, uh, really Thank enjoy you. your content, enjoy following you. Uh, and obviously you, you'll, you know, tell people where they can do that at the end, but why don't you give a little bit of an intro? I'm selfishly interested in, in how you, how you got into things in the classic podcast intro. Uh, but yeah, tell us a, a little bit about yourself, how you got into the space, what you do now, why you're so passionate about it, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Susie Spurlock. I have been a physical therapist for the past three years, which I can't believe it's already been three years um, because it seems like, like just yesterday I was graduating from PT school. Um, but before that, I got my bachelor's in exercise science from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Um, so I'm a North Carolina native gal. Wait, did, we, did you see my Instagram what? this morning? No, I didn't. Uh, okay. 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 We are, wow. Um, we are maybe whatever i will going to get back to you in a second but we're, when we're done we got to okay. talk about north carolina because we're thinking about moving to north carolina so um oh i anyway. can help you out with that. all right keep going anyway um and so before physical therapy happened um i grew up pretty skinny pretty cardio bunny-esque playing soccer throughout my schooling and um was finally just kind of fed up with being made fun of for being skinny so i kind of dove into the weightlifting world because I wanted to gain muscle. I wanted to be strong. Um, and that's what led me into falling in love with weightlifting. I'm pretty self-taught when it comes to that. Um, I did learn a lot through my exercise science background, but believe it or not, you don't really get much education on strength training and programming and resistance training in PT school, which is a big downfall of the program in general, but we saved that talk for a later date. Um, so yeah, and then I started my Instagram when I was in PT school, because I wanted to start sharing my workouts. And so it was a lot of workout based stuff. Like you think of your typical fitness influencer. And that's kind of what it was workouts, boot picks, the whole nine yards. Um, and then when I became more educated, I was like, okay, I really want to educate and give people value. So that's how my Instagram came about. And it's kind of taken a full 180 since I started, but it's fun. And so now I work four days a week in an outpatient in-person physical therapy clinic. And then the other three days of the week, I am hammering it out and grinding, working on my own online business with my group strength training program and one-on-one clients. Yeah. Well, I want to stay on the, I don't get, you know, you, you saying I don't get a lot of strength training programming education in PT school. Like that's like, my experience, I've only, like, I'm well aware that there's a broad spectrum of physical therapy, like the kind of patient that you'll come into, the kind of circumstance you'll come into, people who are post-op, people who are, you know, uh, pediatrics all the way up to, to elderly, to the elderly, people like coming back from sport, people like kid, you know, people who are doing CrossFit, whatever, like people who want to get back to doing XYZ. Um, and I feel like people's idea of physical therapy is like, uh, you know, like TheraBand, you know, external rotation or, you know, whatever it is, just things like, like lateral band walk. And then just like, not, I'm not saying just, I'm not categorizing all of that as bullshit, but, um, I feel like, you know, at least in my own personal experience and people around me that it's been an underwhelming people's view of physical therapy is underwhelming. And I think that, that we're, you know, where others might not be able to like put a, a, a finger on exactly why it's underwhelming. But I feel like sometimes there's a misunderstanding not a misunderstanding. I don't know. I'm curious if you felt this too. Like that's a, that's a big miss that you didn't get a lot. Of, like it's a big miss in general. I have a good friend who's a chiropractor. He's been on the show. He's like, I would say one of the good chiropractors. Just I'm not, I'm not like just like completely sold on that as a professional all the time, but um, very much into strength training, very much into like understanding that that's an incredibly important part of like what your end goal is. But why, why do you think that, why do you think that there isn't a lot of strength 
and program design and those sorts of like real traditional, maybe traditional, more traditional resistance training education in PT school? So academia in general is about five to 10 years behind current evidence and current research. And the reason for that is all, all your textbooks that you get, I mean, textbooks take a long time to make and write and back up. And so by the time the textbook is written, gets approved and gets passed through whatever publication process, a lot of that information is going to be outdated by the time it gets to you as a student, whether it's just general basic um, undergrad or whether it's a doctoral program or chiropractic and things like that. And so that is a huge reason why, because a lot of PT programs to, to the state still teach the use of paraffin wax baths for your hands and e-stem and ultrasound therapy, which is just, you know, the deep heat that does absolutely nothing. And so the main reason why we still learn that is also because we need to know that to pass our board exam. So it's right. not necessarily the physical therapy program's fault. It is the fault of the governing board of physical therapy and what they want us to learn in order for us to get out of school and practice. Are you in school all, you know, a bunch of kids in class who like understand that there's this gap or is it later when you get out of school that you realize there's this gap? It's later when you get out of school. Um, thankfully, I was already going into the weightlifting world. And so I followed a lot of progressive physical therapists who are strength trained and evidence-based. So I already have a taste of that. And I was starting to probably get skeptical about things we were learning about um, halfway through my program. And then that's when I was like, okay, I want to be a different physical therapist when I get out. Because you'd be surprised about how many physical therapists know nothing about resistance training, progressive overload, how to do a squat or a deadlift, and how many of those physical therapists don't actually exercise and do any resistance training or conditioning themselves. Yes, I would be surprised. That would be very surprising, frankly. And maybe that's just a personal thing because if I ever, I've been injured before and I was always, I played sports and stuff. So my goal was always to get back to doing something athletic at a high level. And I don't, I think that the, that self-selected me or pre-selected me to find physical therapists who understood that I wanted to get back to doing X, Y, Z at a high level. And that might've been what you would have called like a progressive physical therapist who's like understanding, okay, I wanna go back to deadlifting. I wanna go back to sprinting and playing soccer, not just maybe, I don't know, I just had a surgery and I need to get back to meeting a certain standard of movement that isn't as high as I want it to be, but is as high as is taught in school. Okay, ACL surgery, we're gonna do X, Y, and Z, but not maybe take me all the way back to to sport at a high level. And maybe not everyone's goal is to get back to sport at a high level, but um, yeah, that that, I'm well aware of that that gap because I've had both experiences before and I've spent a lot of money on physical therapists that just like didn't understand I'm not the whole I'm not throwing the whole fucking profession under the bus. It's just like occasionally that happens where it's like my first experience was a real big misunderstanding of I I don't just want to get back to feeling okay. I want you to take me all the way back to like performance at a level that I want to. Are you my, my the main, you know, kind of general topic god thing that I want to go through today is like misconceptions you see are there are those like what are some of the misconceptions that you see about pain and about physical therapy just as a as a profession that you see in person and you see online? Do you feel like there's a difference in the level of information and the quality of that information that your clients come to you with, your patients come to you with, whether they're in person or online, or or you give off enough of a vibe that you kind of self-select a fairly similar clientele? So it's funny that we're gonna talk about this because my current in-person physical therapy job. Um, well, to just kind of set the stage, I live in a very rural part of Oklahoma. Um, we, the only grocery store we have is a Walmart <laughs> because my husband's active duty military and we are stationed here right now. Thank God we'll be moving back to South Carolina in November. But so where I work at, very rural hospital-based outpatient clinic. Um, the heaviest weight we have in there is a 15-pound kettlebell. And that's because I went out and I purchased kettlebells for the clinic. So with that being said, you can imagine the population that I mainly treat is um, very underconditioned, don't exercise, uh, very unhealthy diets, 10 plus comorbidities from diabetes to hypertension to hyperlipidemia, chronic pain, the list goes on and on and on. So what I am mainly doing right now is just trying to get rid of all these misconceptions about movement and pain with these clients. So the clients I treat in person are vastly different from the ones that I treat online by a landslide because in person, I'm treating 
just a lot of education and trying to get them to just move. Whereas clients that I have online, my online training clients, we are actually pushing the needle in doing tissue adaptation and incorporating strength training into their actual rehab, if you must. So, but with both of those populations, I think a huge misconception in general is what pain actually is in the body and what it isn't. Because most people think that, oh, I need to be pain-free 100% to do anything I want to do. But it's totally unrealistic to think that every training session or every activity you do is going to be 100% pain-free. Because it's okay to exercise and have that exercise be slightly painful. Because oftentimes, pain doesn't equal tissue damage. All pain is is information about a potential threat, which is a healthy response of our nervous system. And a lot of times it's an indication that you need increased tissue tolerance, capacity, strength, exposure to a certain movement or movement pattern to, in order to decrease those pain levels. And also pain is just part of the human experience. Like if you are, if you are, you're not going to experience any pain, but if you're alive, you're going to experience some pain, whether it's stepping on something sharp on the ground or foam rolling your thighs that are sore after a workout or um, feeling your muscles burning when you're working out. Like those are all types of pain and your brain doesn't really know the difference. It just knows, okay, this is a pain signal. This could be a potential threat, but people will willingly spend 30 minutes smashing their limbs against a piece of foam. But the second they have any minor knee discomfort during a squat, they stop squatting entirely. Yep. That was my, that I have a little and have suffered, I guess suffered is a weird word, but a little patella tendonitis over the years. Um, and I, the first time it came on, I was, I was just really scared of doing anything. So I did nothing and it didn't get better. And then I, I hired just a physical therapist that I find to be just like, I was very trustworthy that he's just like good information, whatever. Literally the first day we did squats and I was like, and it was a total paradigm shift for me. And I was like, I've been avoiding squat. I'm like, no squats hurt. He's like, I know, I know, I know. He's like, let's, I, I need to understand how much they hurt. I need you to maybe, maybe, you know, it, I'm not saying it's all down to load management, but there was like a lot of a realization for me that was total paradigm shift for me that it was like, what got better was me realizing that it was a, yeah, for me in this context, it was a load management thing. It was finding the right amount of load that I could manage and I was doing too much. And then I went to doing too little and it was the pursuit of that sweet spot that ultimately led me to like being able to go back to play soccer and squat and all that stuff. Um, and you're, you're, I'm going to say something and you're going to tell me, uh, you know, it's a, it's one of those things like agree, strongly agree, disagree, whatever. Um, you, when you go online, you are able to put out information and the, the clientele that you'll ultimately acquire is clientele that, that has followed that information for a bit and is coming to you because of that information you've put out. And so online coaching, if you're also posting a lot on social media, like self-selects customers that that already pre-resonate with you based on, you know, the vibe you put out, the information you put out, the way you communicate that information. Whereas your in-person clientele, they they meet you based on geography. And it's like that doesn't self-select itself for a clientele that's like already resonating with what you're saying. And so you're feeling like, hey, I'm getting these people in person because they're in the area and that's great and all, but the people that I get online are people that I've like, they're hiring me because they know the information I'm putting out is good because they see what I'm putting out and they are, are like, people come to you are, are, aren't probably like, oh my God, I have to lift. People are coming to you online are like, I'm coming to you because I know you're going to help me lift. Um, is that one of the things you enjoy about the online space? 100%. And I would say strongly agree with that at least this point in my career, just because the people that come in clinic um, I guess something I left out, the majority of patients that I treat are either on Medicare or Medicaid. So Medicare, for any people that don't know, are typically for people over the age of 65 who are retired, and it's basically a government-sponsored health insurance um, as you get older. And then Medicaid is for people of very low-income status who can't, can't afford health insurance. And so based on that threshold, they can come and see me. So these people know nothing about me when they come in. Basically, their physician just sends in a referral to the clinic, and uh, it's just kind of luck of a draw of who you get, which therapist you get at the clinic. And versus where, like you said, online, these people are coming to me because of the information I'm putting out. And I get so much more fulfillment doing work with my online clients than I do in person. Yes, there are some of those 
in-person people that actually are open to change and open to changing their beliefs and open to exercise. But a lot of them come into the clinic with a fix-it mentality of like, hey, I've been hurting for the past 30 years, fix me. And we have a nice little on that first visit, how it's not my job to fix you. It's my job to be your tour guide through your movement, pain, and exercise to try and help you do things at a more manageable level. Yeah, it's the beauty of the internet for sure to, to for people to find you that need you and for you to find people that you want to help, you know, and that, and that nothing against, I love in-person training, but it was almost like, I wish there was like a, a, here's six months of my content and what I'm about and let me know if we vibe and, and then let's do this. Whereas like in person, that's just not necessarily how it goes all the time, but it, it's all good that, that I'm not like a, I don't, I don't look, look back on that time. Not fondly. I just, I'm very, that was what drove me to the online space was to go find those people I knew were out there that, you know, whatever would resonate with my message versus like, Hey, you know, whatever, somebody coming to me has a geographical shares, a geographical location. Let's, let's talk about, I, I originally, the impetus for me asking you to come on the podcast was a post. I don't exactly know what the verbiage on the post was. It was a post about icing, um, and you know, rice and rest and, and, and ice and compression elevation. And Hey, I have an injury. I got to ice it. Um, and I want to talk about things like, like ice and stim, um, and stuff that is just like a hallmark of what like I'm thinking of my like high school athletic trainer office or my first ever PT office um, when I broke my ankle. And so I'm thinking just about, I want to talk specifically about those things and I want to talk about ice and I would like for you to give us a discussion of kind of how that came about, uh, what the general idea mechanistically is and maybe where, maybe where we've gone wrong and what's kind of more an updated, more nuanced view of how we use ice in terms of in your space, physical therapy, pain management, that stuff. Yeah, so I made a post about sort of what rice is. So rice, if you don't know, isn't the rice that we eat because some people were confused. Um, it is. You put your you just put your rice. ankle in a bag of rice with your cell phone when it gets wet, and everything just gets, sucks out all the moisture in your ankle, and you're all better. Yeah. Like, I felt bad that people were confused, and then they commented, and, and they were really genuine comments. But I I just had to laugh a little bit after I educated them, of course. Um, but anyways, rice for those that don't know is the typical like go-to protocol for I don't know forever for soft tissue in soft tissue injury management. And what rice stands for is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And so this actually was coined by a physician named Dr. Gabe Merkin. I think back in oh god the 70s. I think 1978. If I'm I think so. Um, because he wrote this sports medicine book and he basically made this concept of rice and didn't really base it off of a lot of research. It was just kind of his personal experience and what he thought would work. Well, that has stuck and people have systemically went to rice for injury management ever since then, even to this day. Like if you go on Google and type in um, injury for ankle sprain rehab or whatever, literally rice will come up. And so it's funny because actually in 2015, the same physician who made the rice protocol redacted his statement because he, you know, said in the light of the new, new current evidence that we have, rice is no longer a go-to protocol for these soft tissue injuries because we need a certain amount of inflammation in the body for these soft tissue injuries in order for things to heal. And so I lay back up a minute. So soft tissue injury for people who don't know what that is or heard of it, it's either trauma or overuse to your muscles, your tendons, or your ligaments. Most soft tissue injuries are the result of like sudden and unexpected uncontrolled movements like rolling your ankle or getting a hamstring strain and things like that. And so inflammation, natural response to injury, and it's historically been seen as a bad response that needs to be reduced. But this couldn't be further from the truth because we need a certain amount of inflammation for these acute soft tissue injuries in order to heal. There are three different phases of sort of an inflammatory and healing process. So phase one is the in inflammatory phase where you have vascular changes within those blood vessels in that injured area that increase blood flow to the local area in order to help cells bring in all the good stuff into those cells to start to initiate the healing process. Those damaged cells are removed to put down new collagen in the area of injury. And then the phase two is the repair and regeneration where new collagen is formed and those collagen fibers are laid down in sort of like a disorganized manner and the form of sort of scar tissue-esque. And there are weak 
weak link between the fibers. So like this point is when you're, you know, you're higher risk for re-injuring that area. That's why a lot of people, you know, when you, you pull a muscle, they rest for a little bit and like, oh, you know, this feels better, which they're actually in that phase two. And then they go on to go back to normal activity and then they re-injure it again because we need more time, aka the phase three remodeling phase, where those tissues are put under a certain load so that there's more organization to those fibers. And then the tension becomes important because of new collagen fibers must orient along the lines of the stress to best accommodate for those loads as you continue back to your normal activity. And so rice kind of inhibits this process. So not necessarily the C and the E, the compression and the elevation, but the which is going to be the rest and the icing. So rest is basically, you know, rest, take a load off, don't do anything, don't move the injured area. We're talking about like an ankle sprain you know, brace it, don't move it, and then throw some ice on top of that while you're at it. Well, what ice does is ice actually inhibits that inflammatory process where we need that extra blood flow and all those good cells bringing the good stuff to that injured area and the lymphatic system taking away all the byproduct, waste products from that tissue healing. And then a lot of people within rice will take um, NSAIDs or ibuprofen to help decrease the inflammation of that area, which again, we are inhibiting and disrupting this process that is natural and going to be happening for a reason. And so at any point you wanna jump in, just feel to jump in, cause I can just ramble about this for forever. Keep, keep going, I, I'll, I'll go afterwards. You're doing wonderful, it's incredibly yeah. informative. And so although like injuries like this can be pretty complex, we've evolved from just icing to ricing, and then some other acronyms you probably heard are PRICE and police. And although widely known, these previous acronyms focus on like acute management, but ignore the subacute and chronic stages of tissue healing and inflammation processes. So the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which if you don't know them, one of the most respected journals out there, they actually came up with a new acronym called Peace and Love back in 2020. And so from my post that I posted, so many people were angry. There's like, there's no way people are going to remember peace and love. Like it's such a complex acronym. They're like, yeah, it is because it's meant for rehab professionals and coaches to understand and for you to educate your patients. And not, it's not necessarily meant for Joe Schmo who doesn't know, have a background in anatomy and physiology, injury, tissue healing to take this and start implementing it. And so what peace and love is, it's an active approach to managing these soft tissue injuries that is going to help with tissue loading and get you back to where you were before. So we'll just kind of run through what peace and love stands. So the first word peace is mainly for management within the first few days of that ankle sprain or that muscle strain. And so P stands for protect, which means we're gonna unload and restrict movement for like the first like one to three days to minimize any additional bleeding, prevent distension of those injured fibers and decrease the risk of aggravating that injury further. So why I'm saying this though, this doesn't mean that it's just total rest. So rest should be minimized. So you basically should be resting just enough to where you're still able to do stuff, but you're not necessarily making your pain a lot worse. And so you should be guiding, letting your pain signals guide that first few days after your injury. E is for elevate. This is why I said we're not getting rid of elevation because we're going to elevate the limb higher than the heart to promote that interstitial fluid flow out of the tissues via our static system. And why that's important, because we're trying to pull all that waste byproduct from that tissue healing out of the body. And if you're not doing a lot of movement, the only other way to do that is to elevate. And then A is going to be avoiding anti-inflammatory modalities. This includes NSAIDs, this includes icing, anything that's going to reduce that inflammation process. Um, and I know I put on my post, you know, Tylenol can be a good substitute for NSAIDs in this manner because it doesn't disrupt that process does not disrupt that inflammatory process. But that made people mad too, because they're like, acetamin is so bad. Acetaminophen is so just awful and bad for you and your liver, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you do realize you're only taking this for a couple of days, right? It's not like you're taking Tylenol and pumping it at the max dose for the rest of your life. And in the flip side, NSAIDs are, can be hard on your stomach and your kidneys. So it's kind of like a catch-22. Which one do you want? Do you how, want how is the Tylenol mechanistically different and how's it helping? So Tylenol and NSAIDs are both pain reducers. NSAIDs affect the inflammatory process because they are a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug versus acetaminophen, which still um, inhibits some pain signals, but still 
still allows that inflammatory process to do its thing. So two different drugs, both for pain relief and other uses. However, they work in different mechanisms in the body in order to get that desired pain relief effect. Yes, that makes sense. Cool. And then, yeah, good, good. And so even if it's just mostly place, ice could potentially disrupt that inflammation process as well. The revascularization because ice takes blood away from that area in which this delays the amount of neutrophils and macrophages that are the good cells need within that area to heal it. Going on to C, C is compression. Like I said, we're not compression yet because same thing. If we're not moving a lot, we need somehow to get all of that extra waste product out of that area. So compression, and when I say that, I mean light compression, can be beneficial, although studies are pretty conflicting on the amount of change that actually happens from compressing. So compress if you want. And then E, E is my favorite. So E stands for educate. This is where a ton of good stuff comes in place. So therapists, coaches, rehab professionals, this is your time to shine and educate your patients on the benefits of an active approach to your recovery. So passive modalities like E-STEM, therapy and acupuncture um, don't really have many significant effects on the body compared to an active approach. And so with that being said, if you want to do a little bit of manual therapy, the best thing I would recommend is some retrograde massage, meaning, so if you have an ankle sprain, you're going to start at the foot and you're going to massage up towards the calf to sort of massage that fluid and those tissues down up towards that lymphatic system for them to drain properly. And then just better education on the condition in general. What is a muscle strain? What is a sprain? Things like that can help give some empowerment back into your patient or your client. And this helps further limit the amount of unnecessary injections or surgeries and actually helps support a reduction in like overall healthcare in general. And so after we have peace, any questions about peace? Or you want me to touch anything? Oh, we're going to circle back around. We're going to circle back around. So far, so good. Okay. And then love is what we're going to do after the first few days to a week have passed. And so L stands for load. An active approach with movement and exercise benefits patients the most with musculoskeletal disorders and soft tissue injuries. And so mechanical stress, and when I say the word stress, don't think of it as a bad thing because stress just means we are loading that tissue and helping to create adaptive changes within that tissue. And with that, optimal loading is going to be the most beneficial because we want to load enough of that tissue where we're not exacerbating your pain, but we are helping that remodeling and repair process, which builds up that tissue tolerance and the capacity of your tendons and your muscles and your ligaments. O is optimism, another one of my favorites. So a lot of people kind of go into turmoil mode whenever they sprain an ankle or pull a muscle, like, oh my God, what do I do? I'm not gonna move it, I'm scared. And so staying optimistic about your recovery and as a clinician and a rehab provider or a coach, educating your patient about the importance of being optimistic and focusing on the things they can do and not so much on the things because psychological factors like um, catastrophizing certain things, depression and fear can represent barriers to your recovery because pain is very, very highly linked to your belief system, your stress and your mental health. And so if you go into turmoil mode, the pain is actually probably going to be worse. V is for vascularization. So what this means is increasing blood flow to that area. Now, I've had some people say, oh, does that mean put a heating pack on my injured area? No, that does not mean put a heating pack. That just means we are trying to increase blood flow to that area through mobilization. Early mobilization, light aerobic exercise, improving your just overall physical function can help the, reduce the need for pain medication in individuals with soft tissue injuries. And then lastly, E is exercise. Kind of goes along with load and vascularization, but there's a strong level of evidence supporting the use of exercise for the treatment of ankle sprains and muscle strains to reduce the prevalence of recurrent injuries like I was talking about earlier. And then just like everything else, um, pain levels should stay around a three to four out of 10. If you're getting higher than that, you're probably doing too much. If there are less than that, you may not be doing enough to help those adaptive changes take place. Uh, awesome. Super good breakdown of that because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm up, I'm up to speed on peace and love, but it's, it's, uh, definitely like, uh, whatever. I think, like you said, you still Google what to do for injuries and you're still getting rice. Like you're still, it's still, uh, ice it, uh, rest it, all of that stuff. Um, to, to try and summarize them to me, it feels like, Hey, blood flow is important. Movement, moving this thing is important. 
starting to load it is important, which makes so so much sense. I mean, what is the point of like, what are you trying to do with your ankle sprain? You're trying to get it stronger to get it back to being stronger. And so what that just means starting with where, meeting yourself where you're at and slowly progressively overloading to, you know, get it stronger and increase tissue tolerance, and all that stuff. Blood flow is good. Movement is good. Loading is good. Getting the waste products out is also good. Um, what's not good is things that prevent those things from happening in some way, which would be to not elevate or to not uh, exercise it, not load it to, to, prevent the anti or delay the anti-inflammatory process, those things, not good. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I'll ask more like my more like blunt and edgy, like annoying question in a sec, but um, I, I'm curious if you um, would, I, I think people are pretty up to speed at this point that if you're doing like, let's say in a hypertrophy context, you're like trying to grow a muscle that like ice baths, like ice baths are all the rage right now. And I think when, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I get it. Like ice bath right after training, not great because, uh, you know, it blunts to some degree blunts hypertrophy adaptations. It's like, that's not so dissimilar from what we're talking about right now. Like it's on some level, microtrauma, stress, like things that are happening on the cellular level after training um, have inflammation that come along with it. And that process is crucial to ending up with more muscle, ending up in those adaptations happening. Like we don't need to go too deep into the science there. And letting that inflammatory process play out is crucial. And if you ice immediately after, yeah, you won't get as sore, but all of those things that you're kind of attributing as a negative thing, inflammation, soreness, like they're just part of the end goal of actually you know, making an ad a positive adaptation there. And so I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but like, are you nodding along with a correlation of like, yeah, this is like something similar going on here where we want the blood flow, like the infl inflammatory process in both of these cases, your body responding to an injury and your body responding to heavy loads in your training, like they both need to run their course. And I would say that's exactly correct because like I touched on earlier, People would love to roll themselves on a piece of foam and have that pain. But then when you have muscle pain, like I said, like I think my example is knee pain with a squat, then people freak out. And so it kind of goes back to that whole thing. I mean, your brain doesn't difference between the two types of pain, whether you're exercising or whether you sprain your ankle, all it knows is a potential threat. And there's some like general guidelines I give to people where, you know, training with pain. So stop trying to avoid exercise in general and train with it. And so what that means is keep your pain at a three to four out of 10. Uh, your pain should decrease within 24 hours after exercise. So having a cranky knee with squats and you go through a round of squats and the next day, you know, feel, it feels a little better then okay, you're good. Go for it. Keep on increasing that load and that volume management. Um, obviously keep moving in reasons. So don't be a dummy and go out and max out on squats and think you're going to be okay. <laughs> you're making a face. So is that something that you were doing for yourself? No, no, no. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never, never. Um, and then just making modifications and adjustment when necessary. So if regular barbell back squatting is really aggravating for your knee, let's try a box squat or let's try switching the load anteriorly or let's try a low bar back squat. And so those are just going to be individual dependent on how they respond. And then, of course, I'm going back to focusing on the positive. Focus on what you can do and what you can't do. And then, obviously, if your pain doesn't really fit into these guidelines, maybe it's time to seek out help from a strength and evidence-based rehab professional. Is there a context in which you would use ICE? Yes. So the context I would use ICE would be for um, someone post-surgical. So if you have an ACL repair or a knee replacement or just any surgery in general, because when you do have a surgery, that is a huge insult to the body because you know what happened. You know that you got cut open or little arthroscopic things stuck in you to repair whatever, whatever, but your body doesn't know that. All it knows is that it just got insulted by something. And so usually after incidents like that, where surgery is performed, we ha can see just an increase in too much inflammation love still kind of applies to this but not as much because it's not a soft tissue injury it is a surgical procedure so ice can be helpful um, post-surgical it can also be helpful and i have used it in instances for soft tissue injuries for very very short durations when a patient or a client is married via of ice because believe it or not effect yeah. is extremely powerful and we cannot sit here and say that it isn't so if someone's to educate them a little bit on why we're not going to do it, but they're still out of it. 
I might have ice on them for maybe, I don't know, three to five minutes. That's not really going to do much difference. It's not like leaving ice on every 20 minutes, taking a 10 minute break, icing again for 20 minutes. And so that's a very short amount of time, builds trust between me and the client or patient. And then also allows me a sort of just open door to educate them a little further because if they don't trust you because you say, oh no, we're not going to ice that period, then they're probably not willing to listen to anything that you have to say. Yeah. All right. I've, I, so, so Jenna, uh, my wife, weird to say, um, she had a bilateral labral tear and arthroscopic, I think arthroscopically had them both repaired. And for a period of time after war, uh, game ready, which you obviously know what that is. Right. And so the game ready essentially was like, a. It, it's like a pair of pants that you wear that are insulated, that fills up with really, 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 really cold water, essentially like icing your entire hips. Um, and it's an amazing device in and of itself, just like a very cool thing. But I was wondering what the utiliz- like what, what the utility of that was. And you're kind of saying, okay, like we're, there's this uh, inflammatory sweet spot most likely where if it's just, there's probably an amount of inflammation that's necessary for repair and positive adaptations and an amount that's, you know, more than that, what is needed for that and would benefit. You know, it's funny. It's almost like, well, maybe it's maybe it's more of the question of local versus systemic where we see like some of the research where like elderly people see better hypertrophy results when they take Advil because they're they actually have like high levels of chronic inflammation and actually having that inflammation come down a little bit was good for them. But a healthy person not having systemic inflammation should stay away from those things. Maybe it's a similar thing where it's like, that's a scenario where there's so much inflammation and bringing it down will improve results. Um, is that a context in which, okay, yeah. Like I always curious was like, did they, did they, were they up to speed on things? Were you supposed to be icing this much? Um, would you, again, without knowing exactly her situation, would you be like, yeah, okay, there's a context there in which, you know, she just had surgery and that's probably a, at least an arguable u- utility for that. Yeah, no, I would totally agree with everything that okay, you just okay, said. Cool. Um, and just further pointing on what you said is I had people commenting on the post of like, you know, well, chronic inflammation is super bad and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, it is. I never said it wasn't. So how far would you be, like I, I if you're in like whatever, whatever space you're in, you have like a different lens that you see it through. And so it's like, you know, every time something gets shit on in, in a certain industry, like every, people who continue to do that, like it's almost like categorically they're, just in the, they're, they're 10 years behind you should, everything else that they're doing is, is crap. And I'm, and I'll be like, um, I'll struggle with this, this, because I'll be like, okay, I have a client who goes sees a physical therapist and, and then just tell me that they went and they iced and they stimmed. And I'm like, like, I want, I, my knee jerk is like, you go, go see someone else immediately. Like, the, the, like almost like there's just so many opportunities for people to get good help that if somebody's still going in and just getting ice and stim, like that might be a nice person and maybe they have other good information, but to me, there's just, there's so much available good information out there that I I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit more cutthroat where I'm like, if this person's just like, they're just not up to speed. If you go in there and you're just icing for 45 minutes or something like they're just not up to speed and you can get someone who's up to speed. It's not like there's a shortage here. You can find great people online that can help you. It doesn't need to always be in person. Most people can, I'd say most circumstances don't call for someone to you must be with physically um are you at a point i i i I bet you'll be a smidge more nuanced but are you like hey if they have you ice like they're just fucking brain dead and that just shouldn't be just like you should go see someone else or you know like you said there's a context of building client relationship a little placebo effect but that's totally non-mechanistic we're talking about like placebo psychosomatic stuff building a relationship are you at a point where you're like, man, just people who are still icing, like we just got to all do better and, and just go see someone else. Or are you like, hey, okay, like there's, you know, there, it's not, it's not harming you. Although it kind of, it kind of is counter. It's not benign. It's kind of literally directly counter to what we're looking at. But like, how far do you take that? Like if they're icing, they don't know shit sort of mentality. So it's hard just because everything is nuanced and context does matter. But if I have a client who went to see another therapist and they're like, yeah, usually I'll ask, what do, what do your sessions normally look like? Because word it that way, because I don't want to bias them one or the other with their answers. I'm like, what do your sessions normally look like? If they say, yeah, well, I walk in and I do heater ice for about five to 10 minutes. And then they get me on the stationary bike for another five to 10 minutes. And then they do some manual therapy where they pull on my arm and my leg for five Yes, this sounds like the most... standard PT session that most people are nodding along with. Yep. And then we finish with um, a little bit of e-stem to make me feel good. 
if your session consists of that, you need to find a new provider because that current rehab provider is either one, lazy as shit, or two, not keeping up with current evidence, which is one of their duties as a healthcare provider and a clinician, which goes to show that they probably don't take their job as seriously as you think they do. Because if your PT session looks like that, that is a huge, huge, huge red flag. Your sessions with a physical therapist should only include maybe five to 10 minutes of all of those things combined, if any. And then the rest of that should you, it would, should be you off the table, doing things, working towards your goals and your limitations. And it should sort of just emulate a workout session. It should feel like a workout. And if it doesn't feel like a workout, then you need to find a new provider. I'd be curious if you could explain what it's, I think a lot of people would probably say, well, their idea of, like people are just getting to the point where they understand like online coaching, but hey, I could have a coach that's online and I could go do workouts and stuff. But I feel like we're still, this idea of physical therapy has to do with, hey, this person's touching me, they're stretching me, I'm getting manual therapy, I'm icing, I'm heating, and I, I'm in a, I'm in an office and I'm, or I'm in a, whatever, their space. Like explain a little bit how you could do or or replicate, but obviously that's tongue in cheek because you wouldn't be replicating the, the, the session you just said, but what's that process like? If I have an injury and I come and I'm like, okay, you know, Susie was great on Jordan's podcast, I wanna hire her. What does that process look like for you? So obviously you're going to fill out an intake form because I'm going to make sure that we're a fit to work together because there are certain conditions that I won't work with because although I am a physical therapist, um, all of my online clients are coaching and training clients. They aren't physical therapist clients. I haven't opened up my doors to that yet since I'm still currently treating in a clinic privately, but that's coming. So don't you worry. But as of right now, I still work with people in pain. And I say, yeah, we're going to modify things. I'm not going to treat your pain, but we're going to modify. So normally sessions for them, obviously, new client intake, we'll do some sort of movement assessment. And if some progressive clinicians are listening to me right now, some, some of them shit on movement assessments, which is fine. But if I don't know how you're moving, like how am I supposed to know how to help you? So what that movement assessment looks like is just testing endurance and mobility of certain body parts, um, hitting the big ones like the thoracic spine, shoulders, hips, um, back, uh, things like that, ankles, just to kind of see where you're at. And then I'll actually have you send me videos of your squat, your deadlift, your bench, and any movements that may be aggravating to you. And so a typical workout session for someone like that is going to look like, okay, what did we find on the movement assessment? We're going to address any mobility or stability deficits. So if you have some limitations in your thoracic spine uh, with overhead pressing, we're going to address those in your warm-up. Or if you don't know how to hold and contract a brace properly during your squats, your deadlifts, we're going to start with some core stability just to kind of prime those movements and get those movements ready. And then if you have any sensitive, painful areas, we're going to work on a little bit of desensitization, whether it's through isometrics or whether it's through active eccentric lowering of said certain movement in order to kind of send to the brain, okay, this is okay, we're not dying, and this is all right. And then after that, we're going to move into your actual training session, where we first obviously stimulated the nervous system to either increase mobility or increase stability, and then use that new motor pathway and stimulate that in an actual workout session. Because that's the only way we're going to make adaptive changes is by doing something active. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I um. I feel like there's something that like if, okay, if I have a, I'll have, I have clients, whatever, we're working with a one-on-one client and they have an issue, they're having an issue, they go see a PT and they get, and then they tell me, I'm like, Hey, you know, Sarah, how did it go? And they're like, Oh, I have this. And it's like, I have this. And I'm, I get a little bit like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I get a little bit of like a knee jerk, like kind of like spasm moment where I'm like, to me, in my experience, from I have a good friend, chiropractor, been on the podcast. He's good, good, like up to speed. I've worked with a physical therapist that I think really up to speed with things. And one thing that's become very clear to me is it's not like it's it's like um, it's not necessarily about oh you have this thing. It's more about dealing with the individual in front of you, what they're experiencing, and getting them to a goal life that they want. And if that's squatting without pain or whatever it is and focusing less on like, oh, you have this, and more of this is your experience, and this is the experience you'd like to get to, and we're gonna build a plan to get there. And and that reason is because I think it is more focused on the end goal, which is doing X thing, which I think is good, because that's really what people want. They're not like, oh, I have this problem, I need to fix this problem. It's, I can't do this thing that I want to do, and let's focus on that. But to me, you can tell me, again, strongly disagree, agree, whatever. Um, 
is it's just it's more complicated than that. And so this idea that you based on one physical therapy session, because if you go to five physical therapists, you get five different answers of what's what is what is the thing you have? What is the problem? Oh, you don't internally rotate your left femur that great or something like that's what it is. And that's up up the chain all the way up to the your subscap. And then you're like and it's like, well, I just I don't know. Do you feel like we're even qualified to make that sort of a diagnosis or like one, do you think we're qualified to make that diagnosis? Two, do you think a specific diagnosis is almost in and of itself sometimes a red flag or people should at least skeptical eyebrow that a little bit more? And three, like, are you also on board of like a, hey, like I'm I'm less worried about like this exact diagnosis, unless you have something structurally wrong, like you have a tear, like something that we're looking at on an image or something. And I'm more concerned with like, hey, you are at, this is where you are right now. This is where you'd like to be. I'm gonna build a, a, a path for us to get there. So strongly agree to all of that. <laughs> and uh, this probably piss off a lot of physical therapists and rehab professionals, but all of these special tests that we learn in school, like ones that test for shoulder impingement and um, hip impingement and stuff like that, they aren't really that useful because you, you figure that out and then you tell the patient, oh, because I did this certain test, which shoulder impingement, by the way, isn't a real diagnosis anymore. Fun fact, um, save that talk for another day. But because you have pain with this, um, you have shoulder impingement and it's caused by this anatomical thing within your body. Well, newsflash, our bodies are not machines. There are so many things that influence pain and factors. And so when someone comes in to see me and they may have, I don't know, we call them impairments in PT, like three or four impairments. I don't sit there and list out all these things I found quote unquote wrong with them because then they're just going to hyper fixate on those things. And then they leave my office thinking that they are broken and need fixing. And then that just increases that pain response. Like we talked about earlier, fear avoidance, beliefs, fear of movement, um, what you think about your body and how it could or could not be broken. It's a much tougher sell though. It's, this is like a, what you're saying is incredibly hard to sell. And mm-hmm. even to somebody who's understands that this is a more nuanced thing, like it's just tougher to sell and it's a damn shame. And it, it's almost like I want today's podcast and you being here for people who are seeking out feeling better and have pain to be like, hey, the more your PT says, hey, we're not sure, but I'm, I know that this is what you want to do. And this is where you are. And we're going to we're going to work on getting you to that point. We're going to expose you and we're going to, maybe sometimes it's a little too hard and we scale it back down sometimes too easy. And we're like, it's just more of a, being a detective with your client and with your patient. And, uh, like the more un the uncertainty is the, is the thing that I want in, in my PT. I want them to help me explore pain because it's more complicated. And the assumption that, you know, exactly that it, it is this exact thing. And these exact TheraBand external rotations are going to be exactly what I need. That level of certainty, just like with all the nutrition and all of the stuff out there, those absolute languages, like those should be red flags. Our body, it's our pain is just so complicated that if you're like my friend, my client's like, yeah, I have this this exact thing. I'm like, I don't care if you have that exact thing or not. I care that you like can't do this thing you want to do and and let's dial back the load and, and start to increase exposure gradually and all this stuff. I just, I just view that uncertainty and I, I respect that. I want people who are pursuing finding a PT to find someone who's not like, yeah, you got this one thing. We're going to fix you. It's like, that's a red flag to me. And that's a red flag to me as well. But like you said, it's a hard sell because people want to come see a rehab professional get diagnosed with what's causing their pain and then they want you to fix it. And that's kind of the mentality that majority of the population is still in. But if you come into my office, I'm going to be like, yeah, well, you know, you have some asymmetries from your right and left sides, but good news. Those things are normal that we usually find in basically everyone in the population. And, you know, your lack of internal rotation on your left side could or may be contributing to the fact that you have some hip pain during your squats, but it could not. So let's run through what your squat looks like and find a way so that you can do a squat variation. And that'll be our entry point for loading an exercise. And then we're going to progress on that load or that pattern. And then we're going to continue to work up to your goal, which you came in here to see me in the first place. Yeah, you bring up a good point that I'm glad you you added that nuance of like, okay, it's not like you guys don't know. It's not like you can't make edu- very educated guesses. You can, right? Totally. It is It is a matter of like educated, very educated guess and check uh, for sure. It's not like fucking shots in the dark here. So you're right. And like, hey, we're going to do movement assessments and you might have, an, an internal rotation deficit or something, whatever. And that 
that's our starting point. And we're going to, we're going to go down this route and maybe that's what it is. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I appreciate you said that. Cause it's definitely not like a fucking shot in the dark thing. Like you guys are making educated guesses. Yeah. Yeah. But then also if you go into your PT's office and they're not asking you things about your sleep, your current stress levels in your life, um, just like a rundown of what you typically eat in a day, your hydration status and things like that. They're not doing you justice because like I said earlier, your body's not a machine. And if you have been having pain for the past year in your lower back, and we find out that you have been dealing with undiagnosed or unmanaged depression and anxiety, well, whatever tissue you thought you may have damaged a year ago, that tissue's healed. And your pain is likely coming from your lack of stress management. And we need to find ways to manage that, whether it just be through some deep breathing techniques, or you need a referral to go see a therapist for some cognitive behavioral therapy, or you need to go see a psychiatrist and maybe talk about getting on some medication to help you break up that cycle. Yeah. Amazing. I have to let you go. We're running up on time. Suze, you've been wonderful. Really, really appreciate your time. Tell people where they can find you if they're still living under a rock and they are not. So you can find me at Dr. Susie Squats. Well, Dr. Susie dot squats on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. Um, and yeah, that's my main spot. And if you want to send me an email, it's Susie.squats at gmail.com. And yeah. That's it. You're on YouTube. That's fun. That's nice. What are you doing over on YouTube? Fun fact for YouTube. That is where I host all of my form videos for my one-on-one clients and my group strength training. And it's kind of like my little secret library of brain gains because it's all on YouTube for free but no one really knows about it. So if you want some free in-depth form videos, go find me on YouTube. Yeah, that's funny. For the longest time I was doing my one-on-one coaching, I kept my form videos exclusive to my one-on-one clients and I had them all like on my YouTube, but they were just like unlisted. Uh, and then that's fine, by the way, that's cool. It's like, it was, but recently I've just made them all public. And mm-hmm. if so, if you're ever like, that's the only thing my YouTube is, I post a podcast and they're just, mm-hmm. it's my form video library. And so same, same Z's. That's also what I'm using it for, but I just, I'm on it now, which is great. You have a lot of good videos in here. It's awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. We will chat soon. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes, that stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.